0: Well, I want to invite you guys to go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to cover a lot of ground in a short span of time. So strap on those seatbelts, and away we'll go. As you're turning over to Acts chapter 5, I want to ask you a question. I've been thinking lately about, just kind of wondering and speculating, as a historian in me, wondering and speculating about how will people write about the year 2020? You know, like 50 years from now, 100 years from now. When kids are subjected to American history courses they don't want to take. Or even like world civ courses, for that matter, that they don't want to take. What kind of, what kind of, what kind of facts are they going to need to memorize? What kind of interpretations will be foisted upon them? What will people say about what we're going through now? It makes me wonder, and I'll ask you, what has 2020 felt like for you living through it so far? If you had to sum it up, what word would you use? Maybe chaos? Does that one fit? Give me a head nod. I can't see your faces. You're going to have to nod your heads or maybe give me an amen if that strikes you right. Uh, maybe chaos? Uh, I mean, nothing's normal, it feels like, to me, about our lives right now. And those in authority here and elsewhere, I mean, our, in our city, our country, uh, other countries around the world, I mean, the reality is they're not all on the same page about the threat of this pandemic or how to handle it. There's political unrest, too, especially in our context. It's swirling around questions of power and who has too much and who deserves more and what those with power have done or should do with it. It feels like chaos swirling around in this vacuum of public trust that's collapsed on us, raising questions like, who really is in charge? I, I, I think that's the question at the heart of the, te- of the story that we're going to look at tonight. Now, granted, and before you accuse me of kind of shoehorning in 2020 into a story from 2,000 years ago about totally different circumstances, I, I, I know there's going to be some work I'll need to do to show you why I think it's this relevant. But I see that question as the driving question behind most of Acts chapter 5. Who actually rules the world? The story uh, brings us back to the developing opposition to Christianity that we saw, first of all, in the chapter that we just covered, chapter 4. Now that, now that it's out of the bag, if you will, now that thousands of people are coming to faith, there's a, a wave of, of, of momentum for the church, and with that wave, just as high as that wave has gone, is a, a rising wave of opposition to what's happening in the life of the church. The first time there was opposition, the apostles, a couple of them, got warned and quickly released. This time, they get arrested twice. The notion of killing them comes to the surface for the first time, at least for a moment. And then they're beaten up before they're turned loose. One chapter after this, the first of them will die. The opposition is getting worse. And one of the main reasons for this story... main reasons it's recorded for us here out of all the other stories that could be told is that it's meant to equip early Christians to know how to account for opposition, how to account for chaos, how to understand it, where it's coming from, and how to endure it. And friends, in, in our own way, for our own time, that's what this story does for us too. Our time is different. Our place is different. Our needs are, at least in some ways, different. But the perspective this story gives on who rules the world is always relevant and we need it. I want to I get at that question, sort of build the tension behind that question by just taking you through the story, which I see unfolding in a couple of, a couple of steps, if you will, or themes. The first one I want to highlight for you is the confusion of the religious leaders. Then I want to point you to the confidence of the apostles, the contrast between those two themes confusion for the religious leaders, the confidence for the apostles, before we step back into our time and our place and reflect for a few minutes on, on what we can learn from them. That's where we're heading this morning. I want to begin by reading the first chunk of verses that we're going to cover, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word as I read from Acts 5, beginning in verse 12, and then I'll go for now through verse 28. This is the Word of the Lord. As Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, and that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night... We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them But not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to show you first the confusion of the religious leaders. We need to see it if we're going to get the main point out of this story. I, I think this part that we've just read together reads a little bit like a checkers match. We played a little more checkers lately at, in my home. And you know how in, in checkers, like, you're calibrating your moves based on your opponent's moves. One will move, then another moves to, to balance it, to check it. Another will move, another will try to put them into a trap. And, and fight for advantage, move by move by move. And that's kind of the way this story plays out, both in what I've already read and what we'll read a little bit later. You've got moves by God through his spirit in the apostles, asserting power. Then you've got a counter move by religious leaders who aren't cool with what's going on followed by a counter move by, by God who sets them free after they've been thrown into prison, followed by you know, another arrest for the apostles, and it'll go like this, back and forth. I think the way that Luke is even telling this story is trying to draw us to the central question behind it. Who's actually in charge here? And we'll have to see how the story plays out to get our answer. You may remember that, that some of the apostles had recently been arrested and they'd been warned to stop what they're doing. Their first move after they get released is to go to their friends and to pray for boldness, to disobey that command. And here we see their prayer answered. They go right back into the temple. This starts in verse 12. And all of them are meeting together when they, when they go to Solomon's portico, and more than ever, believers are added to the Lord. So there's the move over to you, re- religious leaders. Then verse 17 shows us the high priest, and all the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. It isn't tough to know why they would be. It isn't tough, in other words, to see what made them jealous. The crowds were now following these men. They want that influence for themselves. They see this as a power struggle, plain and simple, and that's how they'd seen Jesus too. John's gospel tells us in John chapter 11 that at one point the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, same council presumably as what's gathered here, and said, what are we to do this time about Jesus? For this man performs many signs, just like these right here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're jealous because they want power. They see these men as a threat to their power, and they're trying to squash them. So the move they make is a power move. Throw them into public prison. Over to you. Next move. So verse 19. The apostles are in the prison. They're sitting there with no other move on their own to make. They have no revolutionary power, no weapons, no training, nothing to do. But during the night, verse 19 says, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, I paraphrase here, go do exactly what they told you not to, just like I've told you to. Go speak to the people all the words of this life. And that's exactly what they do. And that, friends, is where the confusion of these religious leaders comes into the surface. At first, their confusion is about how these guys got out. They send for them for their trial. They want to go ahead and have this trial in public just like they had done the last time. It's the next day. But their messenger, who goes to get them, can't find them anywhere. The doors of the prison are still locked. Verse 24 says that when they heard it, the captain and chief priests were greatly perplexed about them. Yeah, yeah. you think they'd be perplexed? They're wondering what this would come to. Yeah, I guess they probably were. Where did these guys go? The confusion that they have about how their power move got matched and mastered is nothing compared to the confusion about the apostles' resilience in preaching about Jesus. Repeatedly now, they've gone and done exactly what the chief priests told them not to. I think it matters that when the the high priest questioned the apostles this next time, when, when, when someone goes out, finds them preaching in the temple, brings them back in without using any force, they're happy to come back and talk to him again. The first question out of the high priest's mouth is not, how did you get out of that prison with those locked doors? The first thing he wants to know, because the thing he's really most confused about is, how did you have the audacity to disobey me? Verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you've filled your Jerusalem with your teaching. Translation, we told you not to teach. We let you off with a warning. And here you've gone and done it anyway. Why? What are you thinking? His confusion is the subtext here. And it's something we need to recognize to learn well from this story. What we need to see is that these religious leaders are motivated by power, so they naturally assume that that's what everybody else is motivated by, too. If the apostles cared most about power, if what they were really doing out there was trying to, to, try to gin up for themselves a, a movement, a platform for influence and maybe wealth, if that's what they were trying to do through their ministry in the temple, they wouldn't have gone out and disobeyed like this. They would have seen that they don't have power to match the power of these religious leaders. They would have seen that the game is up. Maybe they had the thrill of influence for a little while, the platform their ministry had given them, but they would have quit while they were ahead and escaped with their lives intact. That's what they would have done. See, the religious leaders think that this is a power struggle between themselves and the apostles. They've made their point. They have the bigger guns, metaphorically. So why haven't these apostles given up yet? Don't you know when you're beaten? The same love for power that drove them to jealousy now drives them to confusion. The reality is that if what you care about most is power and influence, then prison the possibility of death would be a huge disincentive to you. But if you don't mind getting arrested... Well, that just shows that something other than power must be on your heart. And that leads us to the confidence of the apostles. The religious leaders are confused. They don't understand why these apostles seem to be playing a different game than they are. Why aren't you following the rules? Why can't you recognize you're beaten? Why do you keep going out and disobeying us? I want to pick back up in verse 29 of Acts chapter 5. Here Peter answers on behalf of the apostles. But Peter and the apostles answered, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Peter's message in verse 29 simply repeats the things that he's been saying all along. In fact, he touches exactly the points that they told him to stop talking about. He's teaching the name or the authority of Jesus who's been seated on the throne of heaven. And he's teaching that they were the ones who killed him. He's teaching that God has raised the one that they crushed, just like they told him not to do. He just keeps coming right back to it. And the first line out of his mouth shows you why. It shows you what's really going on in this struggle. We must obey God rather than men. See, see the apostles, they don't want power. They don't want power because they're already cool with who's got it. The struggle isn't between these leaders and the apostles. The apostles get that. The leaders don't. They see that the struggle, such as it is, is between these leaders and God who has set his son on the throne already. The confidence of the apostles comes from the fact that they're simply obeying the one who rules. It's just real straightforward for them. This is what the leaders have failed to see. These apostles are not like them. They are driven not by a lust for a power that they don't yet have, but by the possession of a hope that is already theirs. You can't crush hope like this, not with prison bars and the threat of death. They know who rules the world. They were witnesses of his resurrection and his ascension. See, the answer to how they got out of prison and to why they keep on teaching is exactly the same. Jesus rules the world. The same authority that opened those locked doors for them has told them to go right back out in the temple and to tell everybody about this life. So they're just gonna obey. And the opposition does absolutely nothing to shake their confidence. Why? What's a confidence like this based on? How could we get confidence like this? Well, friends, their, their confidence came partly from what they witnessed. That's what the text tells us. In the, the end of Peter's, of Peter's little speech, he says we were witnesses to these things, specifically Jesus killing, Jesus rising, and Jesus ascension to the throne of heaven. They had seen all that they needed to see. That's why they were confident. And we can share some of their confidence by paying close attention to the record that they left us. A record that you can find in history of the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, it really happened. It's not just a a, a religious ideal. It isn't just a nice idea. It's something that you can study for yourself by reading the historical record. And I'd be happy to point you towards books that can, that can give you some interesting things to chew on on that front if, you, if you're interested. I want to, though, point you to another source of confidence. Another way we could share the confidence that the apostles have about who rules the world. That they didn't actually even have access to at this time. But that this religious leader, Gamaliel, puts right in front of us without even meaning to. Did you notice that roundabout, unintentional but helpful setup that Gamaliel gives? It, it, he's not exactly taking the claims of the apostles seriously. It's not like he goes point for point with Peter to argue back and forth about whether or not Jesus really did die, and really did rise, and really did go to the throne of heaven. He's, he's setting that aside. But he does recognize their claim that underneath that dispute about what really happened to Jesus is a claim that God is in this Gamaliel gets it. And he knows that there's one way to tell. If God's in it, it'll last. If he's not in it, it won't. He cites a couple of famous uh, uh, protesters uh, uh, of, of Rome's authority over Israel that, that are from a, their somewhat recent past guys who raised up a, a, an army and, and, and tried to push back on some of the policies that were imposed on them. They were killed. And when the leader goes down, the movement's collapsed with him. So, what Gamaliel says is let's just see what happens here. Back off. Don't challenge these guys directly. Let it fizzle. Because everybody knows that, that, that crucified leaders don't really come back from the dead. How long can they keep this up, really? He didn't mean to do this, but he put in front of us a test for the authenticity of Christianity that can't stand on its own, but that still matters, and I would encourage you to reflect on it. Luke takes this test seriously. There's a reason he puts it here. Basically, the rest of the book of Acts is him showing that God is in this. It does keep spreading. You can't keep them down. Every now and then he stops and sums up the story so far, and it's always with a phrase like, and the word spread, and the word spread, and the word spread. And the final word on the whole book in Acts 29, or in Acts 28, the very last verses of Acts 28, you've got Paul in Rome, in prison, waiting for his trial and eventually his execution. And the way that that is summed up by Luke's story is, he kept welcoming anybody who wanted to come to him And he would proclaim to them the kingdom of God, and he would tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did so with all boldness and without hindrance. In other words, even in Rome, waiting for death, the word keeps spreading, and they can't stop it. There is a confidence for us in the fact that the church has been so resilient for so long. Friends, let's just take out for a second the long medieval period where there was state support for the church. Let's just set that aside and say, okay, there was a lot of other reasons that maybe the church could have thrived with that kind of power behind it. Let's just talk about the first 300 years of the history of the church and the last 100 years of the history of Christianity. The first 300 years of, of the church's history, Christians had no state support. They faced fierce and often deadly opposition. We're about to read about some of that later in our series in Acts. Their belief system was completely off the map and distasteful at the time. Nobody was looking for what they were selling. About bodies that resurrect, you want to get out of that body, you don't want to keep it forever. Their early converts tended to be poor and marginal, not the elite influencers, not the kind of people that most uh, would want to associate with. And they began, their movement began in an off the beaten path, cultural backwater on the margins of the Roman empire. Nobody cared what was going on over in Judea. Yet by the 4th century, historians estimate millions of Christians across the Roman Empire, all of whom joined without a gun to their heads, without a sword sword to their throat, with no conquest whatsoever and no institutional backing. How do you explain that? that happen? Just take the last 100 years. In the last 100 years, about 100 years ago uh, from now, it was real common in the West to talk about the rise of secularization and the decline of religion. We know so much more now about how the world works. We don't need those outdated myths to explain it all to us. There was even around the middle of the 20th century a a highly publicized attempt to declare that God was dead and we'd killed him because we didn't need him anymore. And maybe, in the West at least, there was at least a little bit of truth to that. Christianity is not the influence it once was here or in Western Europe. But friends, we are but a fraction of the work that God is doing around the world. And there have never been more Christians than there are now. You can find information about this all over. These Organizations like the Pew Research Center put out these great surveys, and data about the spread of the, of, of the gospel around the world in South America, in sub-Saharan Africa. Friends, in China, where there has been an organized systemic effort by the government there to suppress religion, there are more Christians, nearly more Christians there than here in America. Projections are that within just a few years, China will be the largest population of Christians in the world against all odds. Now, on its own, that's not enough to confirm this is a work of God. I get it. But as a part of a larger picture, well, how do you explain it? The resilience of Christianity, even where it's oppressed and opposed. The spread of Christianity through every geographical area, not just one particular base where people are most likely to be influenced by it. I can't explain it except on the terms that Gamaliel has given to me. If it's a work of God, it's going to succeed. There's nothing you can do about it. If it's not, it'll fail. You could have this confidence too, friends. And to whatever extent you come to share this confidence, I want to remind you now of what you're most confident in. Not just the historical resilience of this unprecedentedly uh, successful religion, but the claims at the heart of it. Friend, if you're considering Christianity this morning, what you need to know is not just that it's all true, but that you can be forgiven, can know peace, and can have a place in the new world that this crucified, risen, and reigning Savior is going to build. No matter what you've done No matter how you failed, no matter how many others may have already given up on you, Jesus, the one who suffered for your sins, is ready today to receive you if you will trust in him instead of in yourself. And we'd love to talk to you about how you can do that. Now, our time is gone. So I want to finish by showing you just two things about the apostles' response that I want you to go out with. If you do come to share their confidence that it's Jesus who rules the world, what would it look like for you to pledge your allegiance to Him? There are two amazing things about the way the apostles responded. One of them is simple and straightforward. The other one is unexpected and just so powerful. Because Jesus rules the world, two responses that they model for us. First, we obey, no matter what. We obey the key line in the story. We gotta obey God rather than men. What are you gonna do? Sue us, kill us, I don't know. But we gotta obey God rather than men. Friends, that's our posture. Sometimes our obedience may draw praise and favor from those around us. Sometimes, it may draw punishment and pain. We ought to expect the same range of responses and not get too worked up over which one we're getting from the world. We need to keep our focus on the king. What matters is not the rising and falling of our prospects in light of what we can see. Oh, it's so easy to focus there, isn't it? To just watch the headlines and watch the Twitter likes and whatever else. Can you like on Twitter? I don't even know. You guys know what I mean though. To track. The prospects of our movement, if you will, based on the response it's getting from people around us. That's not what we need to do. Focus not there. Focus on the king. What does the king say? What does the one who opened our prison doors and set us free tell us to do with the freedom that he has given us? We focus on him and then we obey. And we trust him who rules the world with all the other stuff going on around us. Sometimes that'll come with blessing. Sometimes that'll come with pain and rejection. But our focus is on what he said, and that's enough. Are there areas of your life where you're holding back from obeying Jesus because you fear how others will react? Maybe, friend, you need to be pushed beyond self-protection. Are there areas of your life where you're pursuing an agenda that you've set for yourself, that others may be set before you, The needs or desires or the interests of a community other than this community of those who worship and serve this king? If so, maybe you need to be pulled back from self-promotion. Because if Jesus rules the world, we obey no matter what. And because Jesus rules the world, not only do we obey, we rejoice. This is the surprising one. They take Gamaliel's counsel and they turn the apostles loose, but only after they've beaten them with a whip and a beating that had claimed many lives of other men before them. They leave tattered and bleeding in pain I certainly can't imagine. And verse 41 says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Because Jesus rules the world, we rejoice no matter what. It's easy to imagine them rejoicing when His power opened their prison doors. Surely they did. But now they're rejoicing in their pain. Why? Because they knew that if His power can open prison doors that easily. When he doesn't open those doors, it must be for good reason. Either way, he rules the world and his good work just keeps on going. Part of the good news that Peter has shared with us is that Jesus is leader and savior. Power belongs to him, not to us. He has not given us a power and then turned us loose to make the best of it that we can. He holds it for himself and that is wonderfully good news for us. Sometimes he uses his power in a way that visibly sets us free. Other times he uses his power to bring suffering into our lives. But the good news is that he has all power to accomplish his plans which are always good and right even when they hurt. Another way to put this is that our joy in life is not tied to experience but to hope just like theirs was. A hope that's based entirely on His rule. And maybe you're not facing some sort of persecution like they were, but I'd say 2020 has brought you to the point where you need to hear this again, don't you? He rules the world. We obey and we rejoice, no matter what. Father, we pray that You would give us through your word, renewed courage, confidence, and joy. Entrusting the promise of your kingdom and obeying the commands of its king. We ask you to do this in us because we know on our own we are weak and we are fearful and we will not last. Thank you for the one who intercedes for us and for the Spirit who is given to spread this confidence throughout all of our lives. We trust it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.